WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening, and thank you for tuning in to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89FM. I'm your host, Abby Newton. Happy Earth Day. Today on the show, we'll be talking with the drummer of OAR, Chris Kulos, about performing microbreweries and travel. We also speak with two Michigan State students about a documentary they created that brings attention to sexual assault. Later on the show, reporter Sarah Tarico discusses the impacts of multitasking, and reporter Carmen Scruggs has a story about organ donation. We end the show with reporter Asha Claussen as she takes a look at the squirrels on campus. Again, I am Abby Newton, and this is Impact 89FM. You are listening to Exposure. Last weekend, Lansing had its annual microbrew and music festival. There were over 100 performing musicians and over 200 microbrews to sample. OAR took center stage at the festival. I spoke with their drummer, Chris Kulos, about the band's music and his preference on microbrews. Looking at the acronym OAR, how did you come up with the name? Uh, OAR stands for Of A Revolution, and it came from a short story that our singer wrote. Uh, we started, we have a long history. I'll try <laughs> to make it somewhat short here for you. But, like, we grew up together, the singer and I, Mark. Uh, we've been best friends since kindergarten. We started our first band in eighth grade oh with our guitar player, Richard. Uh, we started playing in a couple other bands together. Uh, Mark and I pretty much started you know, writing our own music and playing together for a couple of years. We had Richard rejoin the band and we met our bass player, Benj. And at that point, everything just kind of connected. And we were writing songs that we wanted to be, you know, finally playing and, you know, the kind of the style of music, um, the message and the lyrics, all that kind of clicked. And we took a lot of different characters mm-hmm. from Mark's short story that he wrote. He wrote about all these different characters and all these different themes, and we put them into OAR songs. And part of the sentence said, blah, 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 of a revolution. Mm-hmm. And we just thought that sounded cool. And we thought that the revolution part was kind of like, you know, it was our musical revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, we were 16 years old, but at the time it just it just kind of felt like it was the right fit. And um, basically, that's been the name, but it's kind of a mouthful, so we shortened it to OAR. <laughs> And again, you created your sound in high school, but do you remember that first practice or that first moment that you had with your, you know, your buddies saying, hey, let's start a band? Um, I do. I mean, there's a couple different mm-hmm. similar experiences. The first one was when we were in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Our singer's older brother had a, um, like a VHS tape of a Genesis concert from 1985. I think it was called the Mama's Tour. And Phil Collins would go back and he would do this big drum battle with the drummer from Genesis. Um, I think his name was Chester Thompson. And back in the 80s, they had these massive drum sets and it was just this epic thing. And we would watch it every day after school. So that was our first kind of inspiration. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward a few years later, 
the grunge scene kind of took over, and we watched uh, Pearl Jam on Unplugged. And that, without a doubt, like, we were like, we have to start a band. <laughs> and from that moment on, literally, like, my dad was a drummer, so I had a drum set in the basement. I wouldn't necessarily say I was a drummer, but I had a drum set. I could kind of play a couple beats. Mm-hmm. So by default, I was a drummer. And then our singer, Mark, he um, he'd been acting and singing in plays. And so he kind of had a voice, and by default, he was the singer. So we asked around school and um, wanted to find the coolest guitar player, and that was Richard on. We kind of went up to him at the lunch table uh, in the cafeteria, and he uh, he kind of freaked out. He thought we were coming to fight him, but uh, <laughs> we were just we had heard that he was a good guitar player, so we invited him over, and it all just kind of clicked. It really sounds like the start of a movie, I gotta say. <laughs> uh, now, did you ever expect the band to be as it is today? No way. Are you kidding? Um, we're really fortunate. We're really grateful, and we love what we do. Um, but, you know, we started in the basement, and we recorded a CD. We started playing some shows early on, and there was something there from the beginning, even though there weren't a lot of people. Mm-hmm. We just kind of felt like this was there was something there, and we owed it to ourselves to really give it a try. And so we graduated high school in Rockville, Maryland, and we went to school at Ohio State. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was like the biggest school in the country, um, perfectly centered in the Midwest where we could get around, you know, uh, up to Michigan and uh, Indiana and, you know, Chicago and just get around all the different colleges everywhere and start growing the band. And, uh, you know, it, it was a very, um, you know, it was kind of the, 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 the process. It kind of happened over a long period of time, which I think for us, uh, as much as you want to just, you know, break through and be mm-hmm. a big band, it's, uh, you don't always develop the, the skills you need. You don't realize that, you know, uh, you don't learn the business side of it. You don't learn all the details that go along with it. And I think that's really important, especially these days. It's really hard to kind of make it um, mm-hmm. as a band to kind of last, you know, have longevity. Mm-hmm. So for us to have kind of taken it slowly and really learned a lot of the stuff around us, I think it, it kind of adds to why we're still here today and still being able to grow the band. Um, but in a lot of ways, we've done things that, even as a kid, I never would have ever even, you know, thought to dream of. You know what I mean? Like, we've been able to play, like, Madison Square Garden a couple times. I mean, that's crazy to me. I never would have even thought to think that, you know? Like, that's, I mean, it's a dream, but it's not really something you're thinking, oh, one day we're really going to play Madison mm-hmm. Square Garden. Sure. Um, but on the other hand, we, like, we just, we, we're really, uh, it's just important to us to keep growing as writers, as musicians, uh, just as a band in general, what we put out there, growing our, our audience by, you know, attracting new people, but also, you know, being aware that our core, you know, audience is really dedicated and there's certain things that they love about what we do. So it's trying to change certain things, you know, just to keep, you know, growing, but also to keep certain things the exact same way they were when we were 16 years old in the basement. Mm-hmm. And through this evolution and this uh, process of growing and understanding and developing, were there moments where you wanted to throw in the towel and you said, okay, maybe this isn't right, maybe this won't work? Um, you know, personally, I maybe had some frustrations mm-hmm. along the way as a drummer because I didn't grow up um, practicing drums as much as I would have liked to, um, looking back. Um, 
you know, I, I, I played drums, but I didn't practice them. I think I was more into music in general. Mm-hmm. I loved being in a band. I wanted to play in bands and be on the road playing shows. And I always thought there's certain things that I would one day just naturally develop. You know, they, they don't unless you put in the work. It's like with anything. Um, you really need to do that kind of stuff. Uh, and there came a certain point where the band got almost bigger than I was individually capable of performing at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, man, I would just get frustrated. I had, you know, finish a show and just, we would play 200 some shows a year. So I knew these songs backwards and forwards and I could play them without thinking. It was second nature at that point, but there was things I would hear in my head that I wanted to be able to do. And it was either that I couldn't play them. I didn't know how to do that. Or my body physically wasn't able to do those things to take it to the next level. And, um, I ended up, you know, kind of in a little of a dark place. It's not uh, that bad, but it was just, it was just a personal thing. Um, I felt like there was much more that I could, could give. And so I found a really great teacher. Um, he kind of got me right on, you know, on a good path. And over the last couple of years, I have made up for all the time I didn't practice. And I still have a long ways to go. But as far as feeling a lot more comfortable and being in control and being able to do those things and have the experience and having that feeling of being able to walk into a studio situation mm-hmm. uh, when before it was, hey, man, this, these up-and-coming bands, you know, they get to work with a big producer. Well, the big producer, he works with pro-level musicians all the time, so he expects a certain thing. And mm-hmm. then I'm in the hot seat when I don't know how to deliver. Uh, well, now I've learned all, a lot of those things. And there's still you know, areas where I want to grow and, and get better at. But uh, it's just all about putting in the work and knowing that it's worth it. You know, all that all that stuff you put into it uh, is so worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, so very nice. And uh, again, you went to the Ohio State University. How does it feel performing at other Big Ten communities? I'm sorry, it was cutting out. What, oh, you're fine. Um, from where? Um, I said, how does it feel to perform at different Big Ten schools or Big Ten communities? Man, we love it. Good. Of people. I mean, I know it's been a few years since we've graduated, and we don't like to think we're um, that much older uh, than, you know, coming out of the college circuit. Mm-hmm. But um, but I don't think we are. I mean, I think uh, our music is still reaching a lot of college campuses. Um, it's where we came from. It's what we love doing. So much of our shows developed out of that idea of playing at colleges. And what I mean by that is that when you go to a concert in a venue, typical venue, usually, you know, you have the staff who have to be there at a certain time and there's a schedule for the day. You have to sound check at a certain time, play the show. There's a curfew. You have to be done. You have to load out, do all that, this and that and that. Mm -hmm. Well, when we would go to like colleges, a lot of time they were free form. They were parties. They were events that we were just hired to play that didn't have a beginning or an end. And we don't have that much material to play for hours and hours and hours. Mm-hmm. It was what kind of forced us to have to extend our songs and do a lot of improv and have our singer Mark freestyle things on the spot and maybe play songs over again in a different way that we hadn't played them earlier <laughs> that night. So all of those things kind of forced us to become, um, I think, what a lot of OAR is really all about. Um, it's not, you're not going to get the show the same way twice. But on the other hand, it's not so different that you're not, you know, you're not going to recognize these songs. Mm-hmm. It's just each event, each show, and each song, and each moment is going to be pretty much unique. We're living in the moment. We want to kind of 
have that connection with the with the crowd, with the audience who's there, you know, that specific night. That's kind of what it's all about for us. And that's all came from, you know, our days in college shows and it's still we go back and, and play college shows all, you know, all the time. So mm-hmm. oh. we we love it. That's great. And again, you're performing at a microbrew uh, music festival. So are you a fan of microbrews? Uh, yes and no. Okay. I mean, you can't go anywhere these days without, without <laughs> that. It's like, you know, who cares about wine or scotch or any of those things anymore, right? It's all about, I mean, you can, you can barely find like, you know, Bud Lights these days. You go into like any of these stores and it's just walls of craft beers and microbrews and all that. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'd always talked about doing an OAR branded beer. So Ooh. that's something that's still on the horizon. We would love to do that. Oh, that'd be def. Well, I'll, I would definitely take a sip of that. So that would be good. Awesome. <laughs> um, now, what? Are, which are your favorite microbrews? Do you have any favorite off the top of your head? Man, not really. Um, oh. We worked with um, some events with, um, I think it's called like Cigar Brothers Brewery or okay. something like that in in out in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm blanking off the top of my head. There's. Um, Stone, I think. Are they out of California? I think so. Colorado? Yes. One of, definitely out west. Um, shoot, I've, I can't remember. I took a road trip out west, and I definitely remember seeing that, but I can't remember yeah. which state. Oh, man. There's probably so many good ones that I'm just <laughs> – I'm the worst person to ask. I, I, I really don't drink too much beer. <laughs> At least you're honest. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. And uh, Now, when you are on tour, what's your favorite food or where you find your comfort food? Maybe even drinks as well. <laughs> Sure. Uh, you know, I'll have, um, I'll have like a scotch or I'll have mm-hmm. like a crown and Coke maybe mm-hmm. after the show some nights. Um, we go out and we find restaurants, you know, through like Yelp is a great thing to have on the road. Um, you can kind of just search nearby, read the reviews, find something good. There's nothing worse than like being on the road and eating fast food mm-hmm. and pizza and beer and everything all night. It's just... We've had those days, and honestly, it's so much better, so much more fun to have, like, a healthy and fun tour like that. When when you're feeling good, the shows are that much better. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes life and everything so much easier. So we go out and we explore the city that way, um, check out new restaurants and things like that. I mean, it's just amazing to me that no matter where you go, that there's really cool restaurants. It's almost like this trend now. It used to be, like, you know, farm to table, and you would go and you'd be like, oh, what is this weird menu? And now you go to, you know, random cities in the Midwest. I'm not talking about just, you know, New York City or L.A. or Chicago or something like that. Just all of these cities are starting to have, you know, uh, pretty amazing restaurants, great shops, really creative stuff. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's really fun, especially for us getting to travel all the time. Sure. And what do you miss most when you're on tour? And it doesn't have to be food related. <laughs> Yeah, true. Um, well, I think just being away from home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was one thing when um, we had just graduated college and we hit the road full time and we played 250 shows a year. Um, but now we're pretty much all married and half the guys in the band have kids. Uh, we all live in different cities, but uh, it's all the same experience. You know, we want to be home. We want to be with our wives and, and families. And uh, it's just finding that balance. Um, and I think being open and honest about it and bringing that kind of into our writing, how we deal with that. I think from early on, even before we were married, I think a lot of the themes we would talk about was just about family and home and roots. Um, For example, the song Black Rock uh, was one of our earliest songs, um, and it really resonated with the crowd. It was about this idea of taking this place um, 
from home, maybe where you hung out with your friends or whatever that is, and taking it with you when you're away mm-hmm. and not feeling like you're so far away. You know, for us, we'd never really been away. We were in high school, and then we went off to college, and it was that idea of, you know, having that that experience to take with you. Uh, we had another song, I Feel Home, that was just about home and about all that experience and everything like that. And we've made a lot of progress along the way as a band to be able to say, okay, well, how can we continue to tour and grow the brand, you know, grow the band and still do all that without having to be away you know, 200 shows a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've, we've made some sacrifices and, you know, we can't do what we do on the road if things at home aren't good mm-hmm. and vice versa. And they're both our, you know, it's our, you know, home is, is our priority and the band is, is our dream and our, our wives and, and families sacrifice a lot to let us pursue that stuff and they support it and everything like that. And, and we continue to find ways just to make sure we can get home as often as we can. If there's days off, we try to shoot home, things like that. Um, and also just to kind of tie this together, a lot of our new album is about that idea, um, of home. We, mm-hmm. we, we called it the Rockville LP, which is where we're originally from Rockville, Maryland. Uh, that idea of home kind of being like, um, you know, we're all from different places. But we all had that shared experience of what we grew up and, you know, what, what we did with our friends and what that means to us. Um, and when you go home and trying to be able to live in the moment, being present of what that was like, um, that feeling of, you know, uh, of home and, and, uh, and uh, you know, just being able to go out into the world and have this feeling of that, you know, what it was like when you were young. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just kind of capturing a lot of that message and just saying we all had that, you know, shared experience. Absolutely. And Chris, if you weren't a professional performer, what would you be? Uh, these days I would love to be uh, a drum teacher. Hmm. I've been doing some lessons, uh, on Skype and, uh, meeting up with, um, you know, drummers and students in a couple different cities when I'm on the road. Um, some of it's formal, you know, as far as weekly lessons and some of it's informal as far as getting together with drummers and just hanging, mm-hmm. um, talking about what we do. Um, some of it's just being maybe a kind of a coach, just like, Hey, here's some things to work on while you're away at college for a couple months and check back in with me, you know, whenever you want. Um, and just that idea of being able to, you know, kind of talk about drums in a different you know, setting, um, being able to look at things and, and explain them in, in ways where I always thought, you know, I knew what they were, but when you have to go and teach them to somebody else, it connects a lot of dots and it really opens you up. And I guess they always say, you know, the best thing, way to learn something is to teach it. And it's, you know, I'm finding that to be very true. Um, and so that's something I would definitely love to continue doing. And do you have any children? No. Okay. I didn't know if we had Not future yet. drummers we have coming up. She takes over our life. I walk her, feed her, <laughs> bathe her, play with her, do all this stuff all day, and she, you know, rules the house. <laughs> Usually so. Um, and I have two more questions for you. I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, but what would be your dream location to perform one day? Um tough to answer that because we've 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 knocked off a couple of those already. I'd say so. Um you could even say I mean, what has been. I like the big shows. The big shows? A lot of people say, oh, man, isn't it cool? Like, you guys get to play the big shows, but then when you go in and do, like, a bar or a small club, you have that interaction with the crowd right there in front of you. Isn't that the best? Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, it's really cool, but I got to be honest, there's not much, you know, anything better than playing a huge venue with thousands of people screaming the lyrics back to you, especially, mm-hmm. like, if it's in the summer, you know, kind of outdoors, that experience. Um 
So who knows? I mean, we've never really gotten to play a stadium. If we're talking dreams here, can I say that without sounding crazy? Absolutely. That would be pretty amazing. Although, Mm -hmm. hey, maybe not. I've been to shows in stadiums and they sound terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the next Super Bowl might be yours. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, lastly, what would you tell aspiring artists? What would I tell us? Assigning artists? I'm, I'm sorry, aspiring. Aspiring, aspiring artists. Aspiring artists. Yes. Same. Yes. Um, you know, I think our advice maybe would be to just be yourself, no matter who that is or what that is. Don't try to be anybody else um, because everybody's unique and everybody has something to say. And a lot of people see somebody else saying something and want to do their version of that. And people can smell that. BS a mile away. Um, I think people are looking for authenticity in whatever it is. Like we were talking about food a few minutes ago, Mm -hmm. or if we're talking about art, or if we're talking about writing. We can also, it doesn't have to be that creative. I mean, if there's people in the workplace, it's just whatever you do in in business or something like that. If you're being the best that you can be at what you do, that's, um, that's what people are you know attracted to and what the most successful people I think are doing what they do best um, just naturally um, but also they've probably gained so much experience they've reached out to people I think if you want to make it in a music business you have to know every detail you really have to look into it there's so much out there uh, you don't realize how much of a business it is I mean there's publishing there's promotion stuff there's the radio world there's distribution there's uh, all this stuff online as far as social media and streaming and the way the technology of the future is going to be happening and being aware of that. And then there's your artwork. There's your merchandise you're going to have to have. You have to know how those contracts are going to work when you go in. You have to know how the how touring works. You're going to have to know whether it's, you know, a small, if you're, you know, in your parent's station wagon or if you're in a van and a trailer or if you're on a tour bus or if you're on multiple tour buses with multiple semis going in with a huge production. I mean, it's all very different, but it's all very the same, and it's all connected. And once you learn all of these different things, which you really need to have a grasp on understanding it, then find the right people to do the right job because you can't do everything yourself. Uh, and again, I know that that sounds crazy because not an aspiring artist would necessarily need a lawyer and a manager and a booking agent and a, an accountant and, you know, a record label and all of those things. That's kind of the dream. But you have to start small and learn those things. And that's what we did. We were sort of forced to have to do that. And we, we first started off small with a manager and he, you know, basically created a record label on paper. It wasn't a real record label with like, you know, walls and a staff and computers. It was a fake thing for us to be able to get distribution. And at that point, there were still record stores, but it was our foot in the door. And once that was noticed, when we started selling CDs, record labels started taking notice, and then that built. And then we'd go on the road, so we would hire a tour manager. So there are all these steps along the way. You know? Then we hired you know, all these other things, and they all built. You know? So it doesn't all necessarily happen at once, but you have to know all of these things in order to make the right decisions and surround yourself with the best people. And also, be open to playing anything and everything. I think we got so much exposure just from playing shows, whatever it was, even if it sounded cheeseball. I mean, don't do everything just to be a pushover, but you really need to get out there and play and make that connection with an audience because that's what the music industry right now, who knows what's happening with the Internet. Everyone's clamoring about how no one's making money off of record sales and you've got to be out there touring and this and that and that. And it all comes down to 
your fans. If you can build a solid fan base, you really can go out and make a living. And it doesn't have to be something where you're staying like MTV Cribs and stuff like that. It's not about that. It's just about if you want to do this for a living, it's probably because it's the only thing you can imagine doing it. But you also have to be realistic that there are costs. And there's also survival. You need to maybe put food on the table. So you have to know how to do it from a business standpoint and be able to get out there and build an audience and treat that audience you know, with respect and make sure they want to go and spread the music too because it's not going to happen by itself. Well, I think uh, aspiring artists have certainly a notebook now of kind of to-do lists and what they can learn from you. So with that, I say thank you very much for all your insight, as well as thank you for the conversation. Uh, any final thoughts? Oh, thank thoughts? you so much. I had a blast. Yeah, me too. But uh, good luck on your tour and safe travels. And I hope you enjoy that um, healthy food as you travel. Yeah, I'm underneath it all tonight. I'm my window to the million lights. Thousand hearts feeling just like me. It feels like heaven out here in the street I know I got a lot to learn Breaking bottles only left me hurt They were fire till I burned myself Don't you know that love will bring us somewhere else So you take the left, I'll take the right Under arrest, we're under fire And build this life by my own design A new direction and it's in between Everything I love and everything I need So bring it back They don't want me Cause I'm no criminal I'm not your enemy All I have is life And I don't wanna go to heaven If I can't so get So you in. take the left I'll take the right Under arrest We're under fire
Welcome back to Exposure on Impact 89FM. I'm Abby Newton. Now as students are approaching exam week, they find themselves studying, catching up on work, figuring out summer plans, subleasing apartments, and well, multitasking. Our reporter Sarah Tarico delved into the topic of multitasking to find out if it's actually okay to do. I do it. Netflix on. I didn't plan on telling them so much so soon. iTunes I playing. No Roommate gabbing. This huge exam. I don't even know if I homework doing. And I see a lot of other students doing it too. Sitting in the calf with headphones on, reading. Even in the library. I check my phone every other paragraph or so in my textbook. And we're not all just goofing off. Sometimes I'm emailing a professor got or listening to a podcast that was assigned. Either we're the most efficient generation yet, with the world literally at our fingertips, able to get more done faster, or we are a sad group of overstimulated, socially awkward, insomniac freaks. I'm taking a class this semester called Voluntary Simplicity. We get tea breaks and have homework assignments like give a stranger a genuine compliment. I really like your hair. And mean it. And choose one product that you use every day, find out how it's made, and then call the company and tell them that you're never going to buy it again. It's taught by Lori Thorpe and Robbie Richardson. I got a hold of Robbie to see what he had to say about multitasking. And just to give you some insight, Robbie insists that he doesn't teach this class. We take turns leading discussion, and he asks just as many questions as the rest of us. He's really into eye contact, and his spear animal is a turtle. I expected Robbie to give me some tips on how to escape the constant stimulation, but he surprised me. Um, I think when we, when we use these technologies, intentionally and mindfully in ways that benefit us, they are incredibly useful and open up a world of information to us. And what about when we're not being mindful? When we're zoning out on Facebook and Candy Crusher? Or better yet, what about the 20-credit student who relies on Angel, D2L, LinkedIn to stay afloat? Robbie says it's as simple as minimizing. Check your email uh, in the morning and use it for an hour and get as much done as you can and then turn it off and engage with the other kinds of work that you have to do um, so that the bell is not dinging to remind you that you got another message, uh, that kind of thing. So silence your phone when you're not using it. Turn off alarms that you don't need. As a professor, he says he knows it can be hard. He stressed that he wasn't anti-technology. He thinks computers, cell phones, and other devices have made the learning environment more accessible. Um, but we also need to step away from them and use other tools that are important, like tools of reflection, like um, uh, developing our writing skills, our communication skills. I thought I would take this question outside the classroom and ask other students what they had to say about the whole thing. Um, that's a hard question. I went to Brody Calf and bugged the people who looked the busiest. I found sophomores Anna Maielli and Hannah Rhodes. The girls said they're really not that distracted while doing homework. For me, it depends on the subject. So if it's really a lot of information, I don't have anything around me, no sound at all. But if I'm just reviewing something, I'll listen to music, like soft music. Compared to our parents' generation, the two also agreed that they'd rather be students today. Here's Hannah. I think we'd get a lot more done, but it's a lot easier to get stressed out because there's so much going on around you. Wanting to know more about the inner workings of the mind and how we process information, I turned to Linda Jackson, an MSU psychology professor. She was feeling under the weather, so ironically, we exchanged emails instead of meeting face-to-face. She says that the research on multitasking has produced mixed results. There are some tasks that can be done simultaneously, 
yes, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. But when we are doing things that require us to think, we can be impaired by multitasking. So you don't actually perform both tasks at the same time. Rather, you have to do it in a sequence. First one, then interrupt it to do the second one, then interrupt it to do the third, and so on. The result? A decrease in performance on both tasks. But my big question as a college kid is, what does this mean for our future? Jackson stressed that the careers of the future will require strong problem-solving skills. Her advice? Use the tools you are given. Use your computers, network online, but recognize that it is not about passing a test. It is about understanding concepts and the reasoning that is behind the correct answer. So again, are we that efficient generation able to get more done faster, or are we the overstimulated insomniac freaks? I think it comes back to intention. We must become mindful of how we use our resources and must learn to take advantage of the power that they give us. So I could escape the multitasking by throwing my computer into the Red Cedar River, or my iPod, or my roommate. But I don't want to, because the truth is, is that we rely on these things to get our work done, to be productive citizens and students, to be alive in the 21st century. But I will take time to appreciate the value of devoting my attention to those things, but not all at once. With Impact News, I'm Sarah Tirico. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. I am Abby Newton, and this is Exposure on Impact 89FM. Everyone above the age of 16 years old is asked an important question in the United States. Do you want to be an organ donor? Our reporter Carmen Scruggs was curious about what happens after you say yes to that question. Here's the story. Recently, I had to go through the whole license renewal process. I put in all my basic info and then hesitated on the question, do you want to become an organ donor? Of course I want the opportunity to save someone's life, but I paused because I didn't really know the details behind the process. Do you just die and somehow someone finds you and gets your organs? Or are there certain limitations and circumstances? I'm sure I'm not the only one with these questions, so I decided to ask around and find out what that little red heart really means. Well, what it means when you sign up is that you um, are willing to and, you know, want to help other people with, with your gifts of 
tissue, eye, and, and organs. Lots and lots of things have to happen. So just because you're signed up doesn't mean you're, you're automatically going to be a donor. That was Betsy Miner-Swartz. She's the communications specialist at Gift of Life Michigan, the only organization of its kind in the state that helps maintain, promote, and just simply make organ donation happen. It sounds weird, but you kind of have to die in a certain way for you to be able to donate your organs in the first place. Betsy says the overwhelming majority of organ donors have had some sort of traumatic brain injury. This could include a stroke, brain tumor, hemorrhage, heart attack, or any severe head injury like something from a car accident. And what happens then is your organs are are kept working by mechanical means, but that your brain has been declared legally dead. Being declared brain dead is a precise procedure. I spoke with neurologist and MSU associate professor Dr. Glenn Ackerman to find out what has to happen. We have to know the reason the person is in that state. In other words, it can't be an unknown where a person is just found you know, in the street and nobody knows anything about it. So you need to understand what happened with it. But then we do a neurologic exam. And the exam is looking for evidence of brain function. Ackerman says some of the ways to look for brain function have to do with the eyes. We look to see whether a person's pupils react, which shine very bright light in the eyes. We move their head back and forth to see if the eyes rotate or roll in the head. We may put ice water in the ears to also see whether or not the eyes are moving, uh, which would imply that there is brain function. Other ways to test if the patient is brain dead include monitoring their breathing and giving an EEG or brainwave test to see if any electrical activity can be measured. And more and more, they're also doing blood flow studies. So they're giving injections and they're seeing if there's any blood flow above the neck. Because when the brain dies, it's not like it's just sitting there waiting for blood flow. The brain swells and no blood is able to get up above the neck. And for any of you that have heard rumors of medical teams keeping someone alive just to get their organs, well, that's just not true, according to Minor Swartz. There's a lot of confusion about this. So people are not kept alive so that their organs can be donated. People are declared legally brain dead but their body is kept functioning through mechanical uh, life support. Because the circumstances of someone's death are limited, the amount of signed-up organ donors that actually are able to donate their organs is only a small percentage. And I think the percentage is something like 1% or 2% of people who register to be organ donors are actually able to do that. And that's why... There's so much need because so many people want to want to donate. The reality is so many people just plain can't. One of those people, a part of that percentage, is Casey Humes. To me, being an organ donor means a way to help people, even if you're still not alive. Like, I feel like if I die in, like, a car accident and, like, none of my major organs, you know, are damaged, then why not use it to help someone else? With your Impact News, I'm Carmen Scruggs. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure.
Every two minutes, a person is sexually assaulted in the United States. A group of eight documentary filmmakers at Michigan State took this fact to heart and created a documentary about sexual assault in the U.S. I had one of the student producers and one of the student directors in the studio to discuss the film and its impact. Kirk, tell me about Every Two Minutes. Every Two Minutes is a documentary uh, produced by students at Michigan State uh, as part of the capstone course for the Documentary Studies Specialization. There are nine of us on the team and um, who we have uh, recruited from the residential college in the arts and humanities. Her name is Shira and she's pretty awesome. But um, it is a documentary uh, about sexual assault, prevalence um, and advocacy and uh, on campus in Lansing and then also it touches on um, sexual assault in the world. It is a heavy documentary. It's a heavy topic, but it's very, very important that we talk about it um, because it is such a widespread issue and very prevalent issue. Uh, and I, I think it's very timely that we're making this mm -hmm. because it, it's been getting a lot of press and a lot of attention recently. So, uh, yeah, the documentary, it's, it's good that it's happening right now. And looking at some statistics, uh, the Department of Justice's National Crime Victimization Survey actually reported that 237,868 sexual assaults happen uh, each year. So that's basically one for every two minutes. And that's kind of a scary statistic. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Laura, this is your first documentary. What was it like trying to bring awareness and shed light on an issue as big as this one? Um, I think it was difficult because we were in this community, and so we had to figure out a way to um, showcase what we know in this community to be true and then make that applicable to the rest of the world. But it actually turned out to be not as difficult as we originally thought because we have advocates in our film, and um, I'm one of those advocates, and so I'm on call for the Sexual Assault Crisis Intervention Team, and so we see firsthand the number of assaults that get reported to um, the hospital, Sparrow, within our area each day. And when you think about... Um, um, the fact that most people actually don't report, but yet we're getting at least two to three calls a day sometimes, mm -hmm. then you kind of start to see how big those numbers are. And um, if you think about um, within our community how many aren't reporting, then that means that it's even greater than two to three times a day, which is already highly prevalent. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading more about the documentary, I thought it was interesting, the different, I guess, the full circle that you took in this documentary. So one, you talked to advocates, people who worked mm -hmm. the sexual assault crisis intervention line. You talked to women and men who were sexually assaulted. Um, so I think it's interesting getting both of those two uh, kind of angles. And you also talked to a representative from our state house. So for Kirk, for you, what, how, what was important about getting that full picture rather than just talking about, you know, the people who are affected? Yeah, we definitely tried to cover all bases with this, and we thought that that would be a really good way, uh, especially to kind of show different perspectives than you normally would. Mm -hmm. um, everyone probably knows somebody who's been affected by sexual assault, but whether they actually know that person and, or know that that has happened to them is different. Like, they might not know that one of their best friends has been affected by it. So definitely getting their perspective was important, the survivors of sexual assault. But also um, getting the perspective of advocates, uh, the people who go to the hospital or uh, go to the sexual assault crisis intervention program and talk to these people firsthand is really important. Um, but we also got the perspectives of different people who are involved, like nurses uh, at in the SANE program, the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiners Program at Sparrow Hospital, and um, therapists and different people who are involved in this, pro uh, in the issue, 
But uh, Senator Whitmer was definitely one of the best people we talked with. She is a very big advocate for the issue, and she has been very friendly with us in communicating with us and uh, advertising the documentary. But it, it was it's very important to get as many people as possible, um, just for the sake of showing people things that they normally wouldn't see and bringing to light uh, a side of the issue that they don't, they don't see because most of the time it's, it's not talked about. And looking at documentary production, it seems like lately a lot of documentaries are trying to pinpoint these big issues that are hard to talk about. You know, you have mm -hmm. sexual assault, mental health is becoming really important. So, Laura, why do you feel that documentary production allows that avenue of talking about these kind of things? Well, I think it gives you, like, um, a visual aspect, and um, you're able to talk to multiple people, and so people are able to see all of these multiple perspectives, and I think it gives them, like, the audience... Um, it gives them a sort of like freedom and being able to like understand and decide for themselves and which survivor is going to touch on them and um, gives you a whole bunch of different avenues and a whole bunch of different people with their different perspectives so that, um, you know, certain people might not understand one certain assault case, but then they might understand another or certain people don't understand the law enforcement aspect, but they might understand the federal issues surrounding this um, case. So I think that this is just a different avenue of being able to visually display it as well as being able to um, to speak about it in general and have people like see and hear at the same time, I think is very important. And as an advocate and a producer, what did you learn during the film that you otherwise didn't know just as a, an advocate? Um, do you mean specifically like uh, what did I learn about just sexual assault in general? Or what did I learn about like the process? Um, more of sexual assault and the whole you know premise that you wouldn't have otherwise gotten just from being an advocate. Um, I think I learned how difficult it is um, even more so how difficult it is to um, prosecute and how difficult it is um, for you know us to create laws in place that will actually um, help you know survivors and victims of sexual assault. I think um, you know we tend to have our judgments and our ideas, but when you get to speak to these people, you see how deeper and how much more complicated the issue is. But it's also a good thing because. Um, Aside from law enforcement and government, I think that we're also trying to showcase what you can do as just an average individual in believing and helping these survivors. Mm -hmm. And so um, although I, you know, I saw like how complicated the issue is within, you know, our law and our government, I, I think that we've created it so that you can see the light at the end of the tunnel is what you can do as an average citizen or a community mm -hmm. member to help um, end this violence. Sure. And Kirk, from a director standpoint, was it difficult to talk to some of these survivors and kind of enable them to talk? And how did you do that? Yeah, absolutely. It was it, the, we spent a few Sundays um, in the Comarts building in Studio E, uh, interviewing survivors of sexual assault, and it was those were really difficult days to get through. It was really hard in the production of the doc like nine people would come in and tell the full story well as much as they wanted to is in greater a great detail as they wanted to but uh some people would go very far in detail and uh, it's just it's just really hard to listen to them and i mean that was only more motivation to work on the doc but uh regarding getting them to say everything that i think that had to do more with laura because she is an advocate and she know, we, we relied on her to be able to talk with people because she knows how to do that and she's trained in how to do that but um, getting them into the studio was actually not incredibly difficult it, there's a there's a like I said before it's timely it's a timely duck there's a great desire to break the silence of 
sexual assault and come forward with your story. Um, and we, we had more than, well, I think we had like, how many interviews do we have? 17? 17. 17 interviews of survivors, but there were far more than that that wanted to be part of it. We just couldn't include all, everyone. There was, yeah, there were tens of, dozens of people who wanted to, to come tell our story. Um, and it's very powerful to hear that. As sad as it is, it was just incredibly powerful because after their story, they would talk about you know the things that they've learned and how they deal with it and and how they've become advocates and things like that. So, and what ultimately ultimately made you decide to do this certain documentary about sexual assault, or was it the classroom requirement? Well, I mean, it is a class requirement to be to make a documentary. Just a a the, documentary, the okay. But I personally, like, well, we we had to pitch ideas for our documentaries at the beginning of the course. And Laura pitched this, uh, as this idea. I, I wasn't sure if I would be, ever be able to do something like this because um, it's grandiose. It's a huge product, project uh, to work on. But um, I do have a personal connection with sexual assault. I, I'm not a survivor, but I have a very close relationship with it. And um, it would be, it, it was a good idea uh, that Laura brought up. I'm very glad she did because then I knew that I could like, be part of a team and help build a team to tackle it. And what do you hope people take away from this documentary after watching it at the screening on Thursday? Um, my major thing that I want people to take away is um, I want them to believe that this problem exists. I just want them to acknowledge that this is something that's a problem in our society and to stop kind of, you know, pushing it off to the sidelines and hoping that it will go away. And um, so... That doesn't mean that people will have like this, you know, that they'll want to start, you know, acting and, and becoming involved in these things. I, I hope that they will. But I just hope in their minds that they're thinking more like an advocate would. So if anybody does come to them, um, you know, with a sexual assault experience, they'll be better able to understand it and better able to um, know how to help these people and get them to the resources that they do need. Yeah, well, like Laura said, I, people need to understand that this exists mm -hmm. and it's it's real and it's affecting everyone. So whether you know anybody who's been uh, assaulted or been in any way connected with uh, sexual violence, um, whether you, like whether you know of someone, you can like say them. You know somebody. It, it like everyone that you know knows somebody. This is and it's enormous and extremely prevalent. And um, this sheds light onto it and it's just one one little piece mm -hmm. but one like op it opens the door for people to know more about it our um, premiere screening for the documentary every two minutes is next thursday april 24th at 7 p.m at studio c theaters in okamas well thank you very much for coming in thank you, thank you. my heart just sank the moment i saw you you're the image of a girl that i used to know don't be alarmed if it seems hard for me to explain but every detail of your face makes me recall her name mm, treading water i keep treading water maybe it's a
listening to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89FM, and I am your host, Abby Newton. To end the show tonight, we decided we would discuss Michigan State University's honorary mascot, squirrels. We see them everywhere, walking to class, outside our dorm windows, or even waiting for the bus. They have those bushy tails and their large brown eyes give squirrels the ultimate awe factor. Here at MSU, the squirrels are not shy. They stare as you walk by, tilting their heads as they examine your hands and search for food. Human biology student Bilal Slaiman recounts, I had like one run across my foot before. In fact, he often interacts with the squirrels he sees skipping around campus. I usually just come out here and like feed them like after I come out of the calf or something. They seem like a lot more friendly and like it's kind of cool that you can get so close to like the wildlife. Unfortunately, Jordan Burroughs, wildlife outreach specialist, does not think this is a good idea. She says wildlife can lose their fear of humans, leading to bold and aggressive behavior. So if you and some of your friends are feeding the squirrels and they get used to that and then another group of people come around to the same area and are not feeding the squirrels, they could potentially get more bold and um, approach humans more closely than they should in hopes of getting some food. Bilal is not the only one who has interacted with the squirrels of MSU. Many students adore them. There's even a Facebook fan page called MSU Squirrels Are Cool. Both students and alumni broadcast their love and enthusiasm for the creatures as they post comments such as, I miss these friendly squirrels, and this is too cute. Some may argue that these squirrels act more like pets than rodents, but should these furry animals be domesticated? MSU Earth Science and Journalism student Carmen Scruggs actually came close to doing just that. I first started this whole like training squirrel uh, freshman year and wonders I lived on the first floor so I noticed a squirrel that lived in the tree across from my window. And like your typical courtship it started kind of slow. I would just throw out like some almonds or some nuts and he would like come over and get them and then over the process of a year he would slowly get closer and closer and then I got him to hop up on my ledge and so Sophomore year, I lived in the exact same room because I reserved it as a single. And then he came back. And their relationship escalated. At that point, uh, I had taken the screen off my window every time he came. And he actually like, knew his name. <laughs> I named him Russell. So I opened up the window and he'd come and I'd feed him. And so toward the end of the year, my sophomore year, I actually was able to have him come into my room and feed him out of my hand. 
However, Carmen still does not think domesticating squirrels is a good idea. Squirrels are very, you know, for lack of a better word, squirrely. So even though I had trained Russell to come into my room and he had been accustomed to me and was calm, at least for a squirrel, he was still like, you know, jittery and shaky. And if like somebody else were to come into my room, he would totally run out. I think it would kind of be difficult to tame a squirrel, so I don't think it's a good idea because they're just super hyper. Burrow supports this view. They're wild animals. I'm sure they have quite sharp claws and sharp teeth and can definitely be unpredictable. So I would discourage anyone from having a squirrel or any other wild animal as a pet. Burrow says that domesticating squirrels is actually illegal because they are game animals and are protected under a permit issued by the Department of Natural Resources. However, these permits are not issued to allow someone to take a wild animal from the wild and keep it as a pet. Although we cannot cuddle with the squirrels legally, or ever, they are important to the environment. They um, inadvertently help plant forests and other trees when they bury those, um, those nuts and then um, they turn into seedlings the following spring. So I think focusing on the habitat and what are the habitat needs of the squirrels and then seeing what, or other wildlife in general, and seeing what you can do to enhance that habitat. We can continue to observe their cuteness from afar and keep them around MSU by making sure they have their fresh fruits and seeds to feed on, protecting their shelters and giving them their space. For Impact News, I'm Alsha Clausen. And that's it for Exposure on this fine Tuesday evening. Thank you for joining us tonight. Special thanks to producer Gabrielle Saldivia, station manager Sam Riddle, and general manager Ed Glazer. Tonight's show and all other Exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. Next week, we'll be taking Exposure and turning it into Sexposure as we invite sex experts from across campus to talk about, well all things sex. That is all next week, but until then, Impact 89FM wishes all students the best of luck on finals as they approach the end of the semester. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I am Abby Newton, and this is Impact Exposure 89FM. Happy Earth Day. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.